For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer, Longform guys. Hey guys. Someone just said, let's get timely, and I love the sentiment. <laughs> Aaron, you're, we won't say who was, but you were taping an interview in here last night, and uh, it looks there's like a, you guys had a good time. There is a there is an, there is an interview where too much drinking happened. It'll come out in the next <laughs> month, couple of months. So it looks like something horrible happened in here. There's like a bunch of paper towels and empty beer bottles. <laughs> So you guys, it was a really intense conversation. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I I learned that actually uh, one to two beers before starting taping can affect the quality of your performance. Uh, Evan, when you did this week's interview, were you drunk? No, no. But it, it is was, timely. It is a timely interview. Uh, it was done actually at the New York Times building, so you can't be coming in there and getting drunk. Uh, inside the New York Times, no one, no one has ever been in that building <laughs> after having a single drink. I don't think so. That's not what they're about. Uh, so I spoke to Sarah Maslin Near, who uh, a lot of people will know that name. Maybe who didn't even know her before because she published a two-part gigantic series in the New York Times about nail salon workers. Although, as she points out, it's not just about that, and it blew up in a serious way last week, and yeah. it continues to. We've long wanted to get uh, stories like this that are, that are right when they're happening. So, good, hey, good job, Evan. Hey, thanks a lot. Hey, timely. Uh, if you're looking to get out a timely newsletter without the hassle, why not do it with Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp? It's a simple yet so elegantly powerful way to start an email newsletter. Say we had another sponsor. Who might it be? I would bet that it's Trunk Club. It's a good bet. Yeah, I'm saying you're wearing, wearing pants right now. Where I'm, would they be from? They are from Trunk Club. I want to thank Trunk Club both from sponsoring this show and for sponsoring these pants that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> they're they're really soft. the The woman from Trunk Club said some men like to wear them like pajamas, even though they're pants. I agree. <laughs> More on Trunk Club in a second, but for now, here's Evan with Sarah Maslinier. Thanks for coming on the Longform Podcast. Hello, Thank Sarah. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're at the New York Times building in a somewhat cluttered uh, sound room. Seems to be he relatively soundproof. He means an opulent, marble-clad, beautiful. beautiful, vaulted room 
Yeah, it's everything you could ask for in an interview room. You have had probably, I would guess, like a pretty crazy couple of weeks after this story came out. It's also probably true that almost everyone who listens to this has read that story. But for the sake of people who haven't read that story, the story is about nail salons. What's the thrust of this, the two-part story? Okay, so people haven't read it. Press pause now. Go open your iPhone. Go read it. That's the easiest. Way I to would do it. love that. Yeah, it's in four languages: Korean, Chinese, and Spanish. There's almost uh, no excuse for not yeah, reading it. Exactly. Basically. I mean, if you speak Swahili, it's going to be hard. But it is not about nail salons. I would say it is about labor and exploitation in New York City. And I think saying it's about nail salons minimizes it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that happens to take place in nail salons, but it is an expose into a deeply exploitative industry that is predicated and can really only exist in the way it exists in New York City and New York State by depriving the workers of their money, of their tips, of their livelihoods. There's sort of two sides, are the two parts of the story. One of them dealt predominantly with labor and wages and that sort of thing, and the other side dealt with health issues and uh, chemicals and what the workers have to uh, have to deal with. And I would argue even that's not a nail salon story. That is a story that affects us all. They're, the way the federal law that governs cosmetic chemicals is written, um, the FDA tests our food before it goes on to the marketplace, so we're not going to die from eating that banana. It tests drugs, but it does not have pre-market testing of the chemicals that go into cosmetics. The law was written in 1938, hmm. and you are subject to it with the shampoo you use or the shaving cream you use and uh, the nail polish. And while the customer, the effect that this having cosmetic chemicals without any testing on the marketplace might be minimal, who knows, it's a different order of magnitude when you're a worker who applies it all day long. And these women suffer from cracked hands, burning eyes, uh, noses that constantly bleed, and even more severe problems like leukemia. Formaldehyde is a known carcinogen and linked to leukemia. And there's also a uh, anecdotal evidence of a huge incidence of miscarriage. That is one of the most powerful parts of the story when you discuss the miscarriage uh, mm. issue for those for those women, for sure. And uh, so I know you've talked about this a little bit in, in other interviews, but I really wanted to kind of dig into how the story came out and really like how you did it. Was there kind of like a eureka moment, like you were sitting in a nail salon and you said, What's going on here? Yeah, there was exactly a eureka moment. Um, I was sort of a pesky freelancer who wouldn't go away. That's how I got this job at the time. So mm-hmm. I just kept pitching stories and kept doing stories. And then one day they were like, are you a reporter? Said, no. And they said, we'll make you one, uh, which uh, doesn't really happen, but which was awesome. But so when I was this pesky freelancer, something that happened to me on my birthday, I was sitting in one of these 24-hour salons in Koreatown. There are very few of them, but this one is sort of Vogue's best bet, you know, an insider secret. It has pictures on the wall of, you know, various uh, publications it's been in, you know, come for your Paris Fashion Week, come here. Mm. And so I treated myself on my birthday at this 24-hour salon to get a pedicure there. How long ago was this? Four years ago. Okay. And I sat in the pedicure chair and started chatting with the woman who did my toenails, and it was about 10 a.m. And I said, what a crazy salon. I've never heard of a 24-hour salon. Who does the night shift? And she said, I do the night shift. I said, but it's daytime. What do you mean? She said, well, I do the day shift too. And I said, hold on a second. God explains to me. She said, I work six days a week, 24 hours a day. I live in a barracks above the salon. And when I'm called upon to do night treatments, they shake me awake and I come down and do them. And on the seventh day, I go home to my bedsit apartment in Flushing and I sleep for 24 hours and I come right back. And I thought, 
this woman is enslaved. And I pitched it to my editor at the time, Carolyn Ryan, who has since moved on from the Metro Department. Um, and you were still you were still a freelancer, freelancer at that time. And she has been a great mentor of mine. And she said, Sarah, you'd have to embed in the community to do this story. And as a freelancer, you just can't. It's just not going to happen. You know, but keep it in your back pocket. So then four years later, when I was a staff reporter and had a call for investigations, I pitched it to Wendell Jameson, the new Metro editor. And Wendell said, take a month and see if it's bigger. Um, and I did. But what I did during that month is I hired three freelancers to read all of the ethnic press in New York. The uh, the ethnic press sounds like pejorative or something. That's just what they call themselves. Uh, it's The foreign language press in New York City is incredibly good. It's incredibly competitive. They have a lot of different publications. Their populations are not uh, reading online in the way ours are. So hmm. the paper, you know, they can really break news and they fight for every scrap. So when you read them in their languages, you get all these amazing tips. This is a good journalist tip. Uh, read the <laughs> press in the language you don't speak. Mm-hmm. So I hired freelancers to read uh, clips and looking for the word nails or salon workers and to see if they had written about stories of abuse and exploitation in salons. And we ended up putting together this huge clip file. And there were a bunch of uh, lawsuits that had been filed uh, on behalf of salon workers looking for their wages. And I reached out to those Workers first, because I thought if they're yeah, case. I thought they're brave enough to, uh, you know, go to the authorities. Might be brave enough to speak with me. And mm-hmm. what I say about the story is, I started with the bravest, and I ended up with the most terrified. And my protagonist, actually, of my story, it took probably a dozen meetings to convince her to go on the record. And mm-hmm. she is a a scared little mouse, and uh, she ended up being incredibly brave. So these these early steps. I'm, I, I mean, partly I'm interested in just like the the real logistical details sure, of like sure. being a reporter at the Times. And like, when do you go to someone and say, I need to hire three tre- tre- three translators to just go through stuff and someone just signs off on that? Or like, how much of a process is that to say, I'm I need gonna, these resources? I'm going to tell you an amazing anecdote. When I was a freelancer, I pitched a story on Haiti. I was a party reporter and no, I We'll get to did, that. Yeah. And I did something. <laughs> I pitched a story on Haiti. I got this unbelievable tip. And I went to the foreign desk and uh, Greg Winter and I said to him, here's a story on Haiti. And at the end of my little spiel, he said, I have one question for you, Sarah. And I braced myself and I thought, you know, is it going to be, do you have permission? Are you a freelancer? What's the budget? And his only question was, is it important? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, go. And so this story clearly also to someone met that standard at a certain point. What was the point at the end of the month? Did, Did you at the sort of end of the month gather this material and go to back to the investigations editor and say... All right. Yeah. I So I wrote a memo. Mm-hmm. Uh, my original memo had just been that anecdote I told you about the salon. Mm-hmm. I wrote a memo that said, this is much more widespread. They uh, they face wage theft. They face sexual exploitation. They face this, this, this. And detailing it with all the clips I'd found and little snippets from those. And um, that went all the way up to Dean. And then Dean said, go. And so from the sort of uh, legal files, from the newspaper translated newspaper accounts, what is the step to like get from that into individuals? What was your did you map it all out in some way and beforehand or just start making forays and seeing what you got? Yeah, we tried a lot of different routes simultaneously. And mm. I say we I had working with me six translators and I will name them mm-hmm. and don't cut them out. <laughs> Their names are Julie Turkowitz, Isvette Verde, Young Un Yang, Yuhan Liu, Jia Ham, and Hyung Zhang. And they were in Chinese 
Spanish and Korean, and they were incredible. They served as interpreters, and they also did a lot of reading of uh, local press and classified ads and those kind of things. So they were almost fixers. It was almost like working in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. So we worked outwards, uh, like I said, from the most brave to the least brave. So people who were featured in a magazine article in, say, El Diario, a Spanish-language newspaper, um, about their new shop opening and they would a manicurist who would talk about how great it was that a new shop opened so we'd find her hmm. um, we used Susan Beachy who is our uh, lead researcher here and to find people's numbers to find incorporation records of places so we could track people down another amazing resource we have and so we started with those people and then we asked for introductions from those people we went to nail schools we tried to meet workers at no excuse me not workers uh, students at nail schools mm-hmm. and that was one road we took then in terms of the lawsuits that we went after speaking to the plaintiffs and their lawyers asking to be connected to them, had a real breakthrough. A gentleman by the name of Deeping Song, also called Sam, who was a plaintiff in a lawsuit against a chain of nail salons called Babby Nail Salons. Mm -hmm. He won and his uh, fellow workers, I think about four or six of them, won uh, almost half a million dollars uh, jury awarded money. against the owner, who still hasn't paid it back. He uh, hid all his assets and sold his house like a day before the the uh, decision <laughs> came out. I mean, real shady. Yeah. Um, so he's obviously been very public about this. I wrote about him a while ago. He took me on a tour of Flushing in a car. And he showed me the pickup spots where when salons are outside of the city about two to four hours away, they actually are still populated by workers who live in Flushing and Sunset Park and other areas in Queens Mm -hmm. um, who live there at the salons and barracks provided by the owners above the salon, behind the salon, underneath the salon. So like during the week they live during the salon and then they come back home to Flushing Uh, or wherever. More than during the week. I mean, for for a month or, you know, a day off here and there. (laughs) And sometimes even pay for those houses to live in or they pay for, you know, a bowl of rice. So... Sam, this plaintiff, had been in charge of driving the van. The men usually drive the van. And he took me on the route where he would pick up manicurists and pointed out that at 8 a.m. the streets just filled with manicurists and flushing. And suddenly you see it. It's almost like a magic eye. You're looking at a street filled with just people, and then you realize every one of them is holding a little bag. And in every little bag are nail tools Mm -hmm. because they actually bring their nail tools, which is another illegal expense they have to pay um, from job to job. And suddenly it just gelled for me. And I realized I was seeing streets full of manicurists, not streets full of (laughs) passersby. And then about 8.35, the street's empty. And actually, interestingly, around 9.15, it fills with men who are going to construction and restaurant jobs. Right. So then I started hitting up for three months with a various translator in tow, those pickup spots, and just going up to people and saying, will you talk to me? And how did you plan that, just that process? Did you say one morning, okay, I'm going to take a Chinese translator with me, I'm going to take a Korean translator with me and go? Part of what I'm getting at is a larger question is sort of like how you knew when you had it. You know, obviously you were gathering a huge amount of information. This investigation went on for a long time. How long was the? 13 months. 13 months. How much of it was, all right, I'm just going to keep churning on it. And how much would you say, okay, two times this week, I'm going to go with a Spanish translator. Two times I'm going to go with this. How systematic is that sort of thing? Well, in the beginning, it wasn't systematized at all. We were really just exploring all these different routes. What was interesting is I brought Korean translators a bunch, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't find any Koreans ever. And I said, how is it possible in this 80% Korean-owned 
industry, according to the Korean American Nail Salon Association. I can't find a single Korean person at any of these stops. Are my two Korean translators who keep going out every morning no good? <laughs> no, I thought they were decent. Um, I thought they spoke Korean. Um, and then it became apparent to me the reason why there are no Koreans at those stops is because the people getting those stops at those stops are getting the bad jobs. Nobody wants to work far away from their family. And Koreans get the good jobs in lucrative areas in Manhattan. So they don't need to take those buses and wait at those pickup stops. They just take the subway. Mm. And I'll tell you a little bit more about how I mm-hmm. found out that racist thread, if you like. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's a that's a big undercurrent of the story and also a delicate thing to handle, I think, in the story mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is I discovered that there is a race-based caste system that governs the compensation of workers and also hiring practices and how they're treated in salons. How did you first discover that? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) So the people in the salon industry don't actually know this is happening to them, the workers. They wouldn't tell you, oh, Sarah, there's a race-based hiring system and I get paid less. They don't know because all they do is work. This idea that a salon is almost like a barbershop, this sorority of women who spend time and enjoy each other is totally wrong. They are pitted against each other. When you break your nail and you come back the next day and show the shop that you broke your nail and they say, oh, we have a guaranteed fix, right? Some salons have this. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. You don't look like you get your nails done. (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) So um, he has blue nails, listeners, (laughs) blue nails. So when you have a guarantee like that, you can come in the next day and get your chip nail fixed. Actually, the person who fixes your nail gets the money from the original person who did your nails and their tips and their pay is yanked from them and given to that new person. Like they're punished because you broke your nail, essentially? Mm Mm-hmm. That is cutthroat. Yeah. So it creates this hostile environment. So nail salon workers really aren't friends for for the most part. Like they don't they don't know that they're they're being treated differently. Exactly, because there isn't this sorority among them where they tell each other their secrets. So because I was working with so many translators, I kept on Google Docs uh, Excel spreadsheets of every person we interviewed. And they had different cells. So we would have a column for wages, a column for the name, a column for their phone number, where we met them, what the latest was with them, some identifying aspects of our conversations. Because, you know, you meet so many Ana Luisas, you just can't keep it together. Hmm. So I had those collated in terms of language. So there's a Spanish tab, a Korean tab, and a Chinese tab. And one day I'm tabbing through them because I'm the only one who sees all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, My translators saw each their own tab. And I suddenly looked in the wage column and I saw in the Korean tab, you have $120, you have 80, you have 75. And then I go to the Chinese tab, you have 70, 65, 55, 60. Then I go to the Hispanic tab and I see 30, 40, 28. I thought, what is going on here? These are women sometimes in the same salon. I mean, not choosing people in different areas even. I I couldn't believe it. So then I started listening a little harder. And I was having a conversation with a nail instructor. She teaches voluntary nail classes, uh, free nail classes at a church to help new immigrants. Mm. And she's talking and she goes... Sarah, you know, it gets so busy in the summer. The winters were the dead season. It gets so busy in the summer, they'll even hire Chinese Koreans. Chinese Korean is an ethnic group. It can refer to two, either Chinese who uh, are ethnically Korean or Koreans who are ethnically Chinese. Mm-hmm. When you get it. And I said, whoa, wait, wait. My translator says, I said, wait, Jiha, what did that mean? And he explained this ethnicity thing. I said, did she say in the summer they'll even hire? What is that even? And then he explained what she meant. And then I started listening for it. And I 
started asking about it. And I said, are you treated differently? Do you find, and it all came out. Mm. And I, because of this sort of document research I had done or, or data journalism, yeah, inadvertent, like data journalism. Yeah, inadvertent data journalism with these tabs, it started leading me to ask these questions and it revealed itself. I have a woman who said she alone um, and the Hispanic workers in the Connecticut salon were not allowed to speak for 12 hour shifts and the Korean workers were free to chat or routinely the non-Korean non workers will eat in the basement and everyone else gets to eat at their desks yeah, and just these that. small that. humiliations that really add up yeah. and are illegal. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Trunk Club. Um, this is how Trunk Club works. You go on, you tell them a little bit about what clothes you like, you get assigned a stylist, does a quick phone call with you to understand what kind of clothes you like, then they send you a trunk with some different options for outfits. If you like them, you keep them. If you don't like them, you send them back free of charge. There's no subscriptions. Everything is on a one-off basis. You get a trunk when you want. Uh, it's a way, way better experience than having to go shopping. Although, I will say, they now have trunk club clubhouses in some cities. They just opened the New York one. Uh, both myself and my co-host Max got to go in there. It's a beautiful space. They give you a nice drink right when you come in. You hang out, talk to the stylist. They bring out some different options of clothes you might like. You pick the ones to go home with. I got these pants. They just tailored them for me and mailed me to them. They're really soft. It was an awesome experience. Now they know what I like to buy. So the next time I need to top off my wardrobe, I will be going to Trunk Club and having a trunk delivered. I really suggest you check it out if you like to dress well and don't like going shopping. Uh, you can go to trunkclub.com slash longform. You'll be supporting this show and supporting yourself looking great. Our other sponsor this week is Aspiration, a different kind of financial firm. Their idea is simple. Take everything you don't like about investment and do the opposite. Traditional Wall Street firms work mostly for millionaires. At Aspiration, their investment strategies are built for the middle class. You can sign up with as little as $500, and it won't take you more than five minutes. At Aspiration, you choose the fee you pay them, even if that's zero. They do not make a cent unless you decide they deserve it. That means you know they're committed to working for you. Aspiration is also the most charitable financial firm in America. They donate 10 cents of every dollar their company makes to microloans for struggling Americans. Their motto is do well and do good. If you'd like to learn more about what that means, go to aspiration.com slash longform. You'll be supporting this show and supporting your own financial health. Uh, I should note, past performance is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that any investment product will achieve its objectives, generate profits, or avoid losses. Investing involves risk of loss, and alternative investments may not be suitable for everyone. Before investing, consider your investment objectives. Here is Evan, back with Sarah Maslin-Near. So let's talk about the interviews themselves, those interviews. Obviously, you did so many that they happened in many different environments. But how often were you going into a nail salon and interviewing people, trying to interview them while they were working versus catching them either waiting for the bus or somewhere outside of that environment? So only towards the end did I interview people in nail salons because I learned quickly that this is a very collusive industry. Those strategies for selling your assets and if you get sued, uh, experts, lawyers believe that they're taught from owner to owner um, as how to deal with it. And mm -hmm. so I just thought this is a, a level of collusion that I really 
I can't tip my hand to anyone or else it's all going to lock down. So I never went into salons for the first 11 months. Only towards the end did I go into salons, just to fact check, really. Mm-hmm. I mostly met people on the street in Flushing, but then they'd be going to work. So they'd meet me on their one day off, or sometimes they have no days off, so they'd meet me at like 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the evening. We met at a lot of cafes. There's a cafe in Flushing that we spent a lot of time in, and I'm very allergic to something they bake. So I was <laughs> suffering super badly sort of dying. And it was almost comedic. A translator would be like, oh, don't mind her. She's just dying. Carry on with your story. <laughs> but uh, we met in those cafes. But then our second and third interviews would be at their homes. Uh-huh. As an interviewer, how much did you have to sort of warm them up to this? Obviously, you mentioned there was a spectrum of people who were willing to speak out initially and then people you that had to be coaxed into speaking out. I mean, these people are, even if they're being exploited, this is the only job they have. They're worried about the future of it. Did you have to sort of talk around things for a while or did you go directly at what's happening? What's happening at your work? Like, how do you approach people, especially through a translator? Well, I wanted to be both considerate and not frighten them and also fair. I didn't come to this story with I'm looking for exploitation. Mm. I came to this story with what's the deal with New York City salons or New York salons. And so to be fair to that goal, I wouldn't ask, tell me about all the bad things that happened to you. I would just say, tell me about your life. And I would ask very few questions in the beginning and just let people roll. And this is a demographic, which so interestingly, I keep saying this, the act of a manicure is incredibly intimate. You're holding hands with someone, you're sitting across a table, and you're looking into their eyes, and you're not seeing them. And I think that's why this maybe went viral, is that people felt a level of complicitness with that. And I think that these women who I let speak wanted to be heard, and they felt the pressure of always saying, oh, how's your day, and never really answering how their day is. One woman who didn't make it into my story, Angelica, she, well, Angela, she um, said to me in Spanish something to the effect of, if the salon is on fire, you have to be smiling. And that's the pressure, the level of pressure the women feel. And it can be very stifling. Uh, Another woman actually the manicurist who is unnamed in the second story, the one person who didn't want to be named, um, she said uh, that this industry has turned the manicurists into shadows who make other women beautiful. She wrote that to me in a text, Mm. which I have goosebumps just talking about that. Yeah, and so I think they really wanted to tell their story. Everybody wants to be heard. You're kind of piling up all of this, all of these interviews, all of this research, and at what point do you sort of turn to, okay, I have enough, like, let's try to land this thing? I don't know. I could have spent another year. Yeah. Yeah. Was an editor saying to you, hey, uh, we're no, going on nine months now. What, what, what have you got? There was zero pressure mm. with this. We always had the goal of a year. Mm-hmm. And initially, when I first got the assignment, I was like, who can write one story one year? In the end, I was like, I still need more time. <laughs> um, and I was doing interviews till the last minute. I mean, till the day we published yeah, I wanted to just dot every I and cross every T and also just make sure I had the most powerful and compelling pieces of information and make sure I had them all tight. Did you have a sort of methodology for organizing everything and sitting down to write it, mapping it all out? I mean, these stories are extremely, it's double, triple inside page, the first one. I mean, these stories are extremely long. How many words was the... 
I think they're all together like 9,500 words. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of structure to them. Yeah, I wrote them a long time ago, and then we played with them like puzzle pieces and mm. kept adding and augmenting and losing characters, which was felt like losing a child, and adding more, um, mostly losing characters. My editor, Michael Luo, has a much more spare sense of writing than I do, and I think he was right in the end, even though I fought him tooth and nail. <laughs> and They're always right. Uh, yeah. Always right. Why are they always right? Um, my friend, Annika Chapin, has, she's a dramaturg, and she taught me a saying in dramaturgy, which is you don't put a hat on a hat, which I think is really great. And sort of Michael's uh, policy, though he doesn't use that phrase, was you had the hat. You know, you don't need to put more hats on it. You don't need to gloss it up. And uh, I think that process of writing it a while ago and then keeping working on it, working on it and making it almost a living document was uh, painful, but uh, worked, made it gel. Did you have confrontational moments in the reporting with either salon owners or people that didn't want you to be doing or sort of uh, sussed out what it is you were after? I didn't have confrontational moments that I couldn't handle. I had, please leave my salon, Mm -hmm. or I don't want to answer any more questions. I had one upsetting moment where a manicurist that we wrote about initially, who didn't end up being in the story, but greatly informed our understanding of especially the chemical exposure aspect, Lihu, she was locked out of a salon that she worked at in, believe, Long Island. Mm -hmm. And she didn't even have $5. I think she asked, she begged, could you give me $5? I can just get to the train station. And she got in a conversation with the owner and they locked her out. And they take her to and from the salon. So she had no way to get home. She had no way to call her children or anything, like anyone to pick her up. She's hours from home. And and that just underscores the vulnerability. These workers who are far away, it's not just like, ugh, they can't see their family. It's they're vulnerable. And she called us and she said, come pick me up, please, please. And I couldn't. I couldn't as a journalist. I, I, I can't send her a car. I mean, I don't, I don't know what if I did the right thing. And I advised her, you should call the authorities if you think you're in danger. And she did. And she ended up getting home. But she was very upset with me. She said, you know, we had this intimate relationship. Couldn't you have come get me? And I don't think it would have been appropriate for me to get her had she been in a very dangerous situation, of course mm-hmm. I would have gotten her. You know, so there were these d- dilemmas when you get in that deep with people uh, that I don't know ri- what the right answer is at all. In the aftermath of the story, uh, how much have you been in touch with those, some of the characters from the story are seen? Have they seen the sort of magnitude of the response or they're wrapped up in, you know, the work and, you know, this exact situation? So maybe they don't have time or the ability to find out what's going on in the larger press about it. It's a mixed bag. Uh, Michelle Sun and Jing Ren, the two cousins who are profiled in the first piece uh, about labor practices, they were very, not startled isn't the right word about the story, but it gave them a lot to process. Um, but they're sort of beautiful souls, and both of them uh, have said thank you, you know, thank you for what this is achieving. They believe in it, even though they're not advocates and they're not like, they didn't come to me to tell their story, but I think they, they get it and they're mm-hmm. proud of it, even if they're not banging the drum. Um, Eugenia Colon, who is in the photograph of the second story, who has these really destroyed lungs from acrylic nails, she called me in tears and she's overwhelmed with happiness about what's happening because through discussing this she really connected the dots on what happened to her and what's happening to the women in her industry and through this has become a measure of an advocate 
and feels very passionately about it. So she's mm. very happy. So let's talk a little bit about the the impact that the story has had and, and what happened when it came out. So clearly I was looking back at your Twitter feed from prior to the story being released. Mm-hmm. And clearly you'd been working on it for a long time. It was a huge story. You were sort of counting down the days. At one point you were like two days mm-hmm. and people were like, two days to what? <laughs> uh, did the Times itself sort of gear up around this is a big story, we're going to treat it in this way, we're going we're gonna to sort of marshal all these avenues to get it out? Or was it sort of like, okay, this one's going on the front page? Like, how, how many people were involved in sort of knowing where, where it was going? I think whenever the Times invests a reporter's year salary into a story, they have a big rollout. This took a new shape because I had the idea to publish it in four languages mm-hmm. because it came became abundantly clear to me that the people who this was having to, as I said before, don't know their own stories. And I wanted them to know. And the other thing that happened is I had written a story in Queens about McDonald's in uh, Korean elders were sitting there all day and they wouldn't leave their chairs. And the owner got them arrested because they just wouldn't leave. And I wrote this story and it went totally viral in Korea. So I said to my bosses, I said, look, whenever we write about, you know, Korean issues of of respect and the stuff that really, you know, makes them feel, uh, they just copy our stories and put them in Korean on their front pages. Like, we should get those clicks. (laughs) And so this started the conversation. And Lydia Polgren had already been involved in a a translation initiative that the Times is embarking on. So this Mm. was, my editor Michael said when we had this big meeting, if this is the direction we're going, why don't we use this as an experiment and pull out all the stops? And I thank him for that. It It was a big moment. And then we rolled it out both digitally and uh, in print, we started on Thursday because we, and usually we did it online on Thursday, and then yeah, we print on first, yeah, print on Sunday and Monday, and that's because we are tracking where our readers are. And the idea is, Wendell Jameson said in an interview, to go where the readers are, and on Thursday and Friday, people are sitting at their desks clicking around, and on Sunday and Monday, they're you know opening the paper. So we did that, and then Michelle Dozois, who uh, was a growth editor, we're calling them, this new job in the Times for building social media presence and reaching readers where they're reading us. Uh, She was part of the Facebook initiative and the Instagram initiative. Um, And Elizabeth Goodridge really spearheaded the translation, making sure it happened, making sure even our tweets were translated and our comments. Mm. So there there was sort of a, a couple of stages of the response, one of which was just Wow, this is this is going viral in some sort of social media sense. Like mm-hmm. the, clearly, a lot of people are reading this. By if it came out on Thursday, it wasn't long before I saw like just streams of people saying like, "You got to read this. You got to read this." And Woo-hoo. was there was there a point at which it got so big that you felt overwhelmed by the response to it? Oh my God, is this my moment of truth? Do I have to do I have to tell the truth? Uh, yes. No. Oh, thought you were going to say that. I went into my mentor's office and I turned to her and I burst into tears at one point during that first day. And then I wiped my TV makeup from my 30th TV show clean and I went back on TV again. So, you know, I had a moment. It will affect change and it'll hopefully affect a lot of people I've come to care about's life. And that was overwhelming very briefly. I am a human. Yeah. Well, I, I assumed that the whole thing would be <laughs> quite overwhelming. And you, you sort of referenced the second part of what I was going to ask, which was, I mean, beyond just people reading it and responding to it, and there's all this sort of 
personal response from people saying, what's my role in that? I mean, the governor's office issued a statement by the chief counsel of the governor of New York saying this article prompted us to do this thing, which is, I don't know that I've ever, outside of like Abu Ghraib or something, like, I'm not sure I've seen like, <laughs> or, or maybe like a Snowden document, like something that has that immediate impact on how the government is going to treat a particular issue. And was that in and of itself surprising? Or did you expect the, once you revealed this, that there was going to be pressure on city and state governments to to do something about it? I just expected to tell a good story that was important. I think if you think beyond that, then you stop seeing your subjects, you stop seeing your story. And maybe I sound a little too puritanical or something like I, I'm so pure, I didn't think ahead. But I didn't think ahead. I just thought it was a really good story. And when I told my friends, they went, what? You know, the few friends, I have like half a dozen friends who are allowed to know and sworn to secrecy. And just that like kind of double take reaction, that's what I look for in all my stories. And I think what the governor's office did is the equivalent of a giant, like, holy cow, and then acted on it because they can. So I don't think I thought beyond that the story needed to be told. That was sort of where it ended for me. And you mentioned you've done a million interviews and you've done uh, you've done Q&As with people. And you, and you have, I've noticed you have people asking you sort of uh, trying to turn you into an advocate in some ways, like asking you, what should I do or what should the next step be? And how do you sort of tread that line? Obviously, you're passionate about this issue if you want to spend all this time uncovering the story itself. But now how do you sort of draw that line and say, like, you know, that's really up to someone else? You have to be careful, I think, as a journalist all the time. I don't think it's a fiction, as some people say, that uh, the idea of uh, journalistic neutrality or objectivity, we really strive for it here. And probably there's somebody laughing into their latte right now. But we do. I do. Um, And... uh, when people ask me these questions, what should we do now? I say strongly, I'm not an advocate. I'm a journalist. I'm telling you what's happening, and the rest is up to someone else. I will cover it, and I will keep a hawk eye on it, but that's where I end. Otherwise, I'm compromising myself, and how can you trust any of my writing if I have a goal? Mm-hmm. You went to Columbia Journalism School, yeah. is that right? Mm-hmm. So how did you kind of uh, work your way in to to the world of the New York Times. Well, my alma mater is probably going to flip over on her stone pedestal right now, but you don't need to go to journalism school to be a reporter. I was a reporter before I went to journalism school. I was a freelancer. I wrote about spas and traveled and got massages, which was pretty awesome. And then I realized I was living a highly enjoyable and highly meaningless life. And I sort of wanted to dedicate myself to something more important. Um, Then I went to journalism school, uh, started freelancing for The Times, pitching as many sections as I could. I actually started freelancing by staying up all night and discovering the emails of various editors and sending them pitches. And in the morning, I had two section cover stories. Hmm. And I just kept that up, and once you build these relationships with one editor and you're good for one story, then they start relying on you for a story a month or two stories a month. And then you become, I like to say that the Times is like a three-legged stool. You become one leg of the stool, and it's sort of leaning on you. And, and, and that's how you make yourself valuable at a, any business or a publication. You become a leg they didn't know they really needed. <laughs> um, and then uh, Carolyn Ryan, uh, one of my mentors, she had an idea to bring back our uh, boldface names column. And they wanted to bring it back sort of younger and a little bit weirder. And I came in with Nocturnalist, where I covered the underside of New York City. I went to secret 
uh, acrobatics shows in warehouses in Bushwick. And I went uh, night lobster diving off of Sheepshead Bay. And then the second year I had it, Carolyn said, let's glam it up a little. I want to send you to every red carpet, and I want you to push our readers' noses up against the glass. And the first red carpet I covered, I was on Carnegie Hall. I was working with a team of stringers. And in front of Carnegie Hall was a red carpet. And right before the event started, a poodle walked up and peed in the middle of the red carpet. And that was my lead of my first story. And we sort of became that poodle. Uh, that was the tone of Nocturnalist. Uh, sort of, we don't know why we're here. It's kind of crazy. Can you believe there's a red carpet in the middle of the avenue? And, you know, not that we're peeing on it, but we're we're out of our comfort zone because the reader is, too. I mean, only Kim Kardashian knows what to do at one of those things. And so... So you also felt out of your, out of yeah, your comfort zone at those events. I didn't know who any of the celebrities were. And I was sort of walking up to them being like, you seem important. Can you tell me why you're important? And they would laugh in my face and give me a great interview. And then there was the Alec Baldwin incident. I was going to ask about that one because I went and read a bunch of them, and that <laughs> was the one that I was sort of like, "What? What is happening here? What well, is going on?" I think our my process disarmed people because I was so sick of this boilerplate that you'd get from celebrities where they just try to talk about their influences and their you know you've heard it everywhere. I, I would actually never stand on the red carpet. I'd stand behind everybody at the red carpet, and I'd call it the meta red carpet, and I'd watch what was going on from the weirdest angle just to really understand it. It's like a, almost like a a naturalist watching them. So I walked up to uh, Alec Baldwin at an event that was for the East End for the Nature Conservancy. And he's- The East End being in uh, the the Hamptons. Hamptons. And he is very known for having suffered from Lyme disease. And I said, how do you want to save the outdoors? Those ticks, you know, screwed you up, man. Like, why are you advocating to save their home? You know? And he was like, what? And it started this rapport, and I had to leave because I never ate any of the food at any of the events I was at because the Times is not allowed to take anything for free. Ah, so back I'd, to the uh, neutrality. Exactly. So I would be at these lavish dinners, and I'd be starving. I had, like, pizza in my purse once or twice. <laughs> so I left. He said, well, you're not going to eat the food. I said, I got to go. He said, that New York Times, that's so crazy. Where are you eating? And I said I was eating. And then about an hour later, he showed up four miles away at this restaurant. He was like, I was looking for you. And I was like, what? I'm here. And he's like, I'm just going to stay five minutes. And he sat and he stayed like two hours and he cut all my food up for me while I sat there with my friends, our jaws on the floor. It was written very carefully in that I couldn't tell if the implication was that he was being extremely creepy or being extremely charming. You'll never know. <laughs> I went with creepy. And uh, if you're listening, ways, Alec, but... you know. <laughs> but uh, so you're on this beat and did you set a time limit for it? Say, I'll do this for a certain amount of time, or uh, or would you have done it for? It seems like, in some ways, like glamorous and fun. You're out all night, and then in other ways, like it's kind of horrible. Maybe no, there was nothing horrible about no. it. Everybody says that. Everybody's like, oh, weren't you so bored? Parties are boring if you're partying. Parties, if you're a journalist, are fascinating. It's a chance to watch people in their na- natural habitat, mm-hmm. you know, like a naturalist. And and I would leave parties more energized than when I arrived. And I was going. To like eight a week. One five days, I went to twenty five parties during one fashion week. It was really wild. Uh, but then I was a freelancer during that time when I had this column. Oh, you were not on staff. Yeah. Oh. And uh, Carolyn Ryan uh, said to me, "We use you like a reporter, but we don't use treat you like one. That's wrong. You want to be a reporter." And I was like, "Sure." And they hired me for a particular job, which was at the time night rewrite, which is a very challenging feat. 
where you sit at a desk from 3 p.m. to 1 in the morning waiting for bad things to happen. Mm-hmm. And they happen. And it's very stressful and also very boring. But also you know, girds your loins for all types of journalism. And then when you went on to, into a more sort of general assignment situation, I'm curious how that works. Like you're, you're covering Queens. I mean, this is like newspaper reporting 101, but I never worked for newspaper. Mm-hmm. So and a lot of our listeners may not know, like, how does an assignment get doled out to you covered? I mean, I was making a list of like building collapses, police memorials, closing of the Queensboro Bridge, like more recently, like Lower East Side uh, gas explosion. Like, how does that get doled out to you? How do you, how do they determine what you're going to cover? So breaking news is all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. When there's a building collapse, we hear about it. We get a police report that's sent to email from the main police headquarters. And then it's everybody, you know, we need one person the hospital, one person at the homes of the families, one person at the scene, one person with the police commissioner at 1PP. Uh, that's one police plaza. Didn't I sound really journalistic? Yeah, she's very insider. Mm. It's taking me a while to get there, and I'm still not there, but <laughs> I can throw on the lingo. So that is what happens with a breaking news story. But mo- most of a beat reporter's job is enterprise, especially when you have a beat like Queens, which doesn't have a high breaking news turnover. So I would do things like meet with elected officials and walk into shops and wander around. I had a front page story come because I went into a record store in Jamaica, Queens, and I said to the guy, what's your highest seller? And he said, "Uh, you know, reggae man and parties. And I said, I'm sorry, what? Parties? And he said, yeah, yeah, party CDs. And I was like, excuse me? And it turns out there is a huge trade in watching regular people's parties from Jamaica. You watch them from start to finish at home uh-huh. by yourself. Huh. And there's It feels a, like you're there. Is that the idea? Like you're homesick yeah, and you you're a homesick party and that's you really... watch them and you want the freshest parties and then you recognize some people who are on the scene and you want to dress like them and you learn the new dances. So it was a lot of wandering. So now now you've done this story, does this change your situation at the times? Like, do you go back to uh, daily assignments or is there pressure to, like, find the next story that's this big that, you know, pulls together this many threads or takes as much time? Like, how, how do you sort of proceed from here? Well, I think I'm going to be covering the ramifications from the nail salon story for a while. Yeah. Maybe there'll be some federal moves, which would be interesting. There was something just today, the city thing happened today. Yes, so you the, wrote that up, that mm-hmm. comes in, and then you write that up. Exactly. Yeah. So today, Mayor de Blasio announced moves. Um, so there's been state, there's been local, and maybe there'll be some policy shifts, which would be interesting. I'm going to be the Manhattan reporter with a special focus on younger New Yorkers, which is a beat I pitched because I think we should do a better job of covering what's burbling up from those people who, as E.B. White would say, give the city its vitality. And I will go back to the beat. I don't think there's pressure. My friend said that this is a real before and after life moment, this story. And it is emotionally for me, but I don't think it will be uh, professionally. I'm going to keep on keeping on. And do you prefer that mix of, of reporting where there's, there's more action? Like if you could do anything, would you do another year? long investigation? I need to write three stories a week, 10 stories a week. This one story, one year. I'm a writer. Let me write. (laughs) I need to write. I'm desperate to write. I don't know uh, if there's like any hidden significance to it, but I happen to know because I have an inside contact with the Times that you uh, sort of started a group of women reporters and editors at the Times called the Old Girls Club. Yep. And I'm just curious what what's what's behind that? Like, what's the goal? And the goal was personal. I heard a couple strong 
important women speak about having girl community in their workplaces. And uh, one of them was Jill. She said, mm-hmm. I want to thank my girl Posse when she got made executive editor. And another person was Gloria Steinem, who talked about having uh, sort of a sorority of very interesting women who made her life good and possible. And I thought I didn't have that professionally. I have that in my personal life, but I really didn't have professionally. And I almost saw my female colleagues around the same age as competitors. And actually, Tina Fey, in her book, Bossy Pants, uh, talks about the phenomenon when a new woman, particularly a younger woman, walks into the writer's room, the existent female writers, of which are very few, sort of bristle. And she calls that a girl-on-girl hate crime. And I thought about that, and it really struck a chord with me. And I thought... I need to find women peers, and and I sort of have a motto of bring other people up with you. Mm-hmm. And the people who have opened doors for me at the Times, of which initially there were very few because I was this outsider just banging on them all, they've changed my life. And I thought, you know, let us open doors for each other. Let's give each other the inside skinny. So I started this old girls club, a play on the old boys club that journalism has traditionally been. <laughs> for it, sort of the youngest and people who consider themselves at the beginning of their career rather than the middle or apex. And it started out, I was the only one who came to my first meeting with my best friend, Liz Harris, who also is a reporter here, but we've been friends since childhood. She and I sat sort of lonely, staring at each other. <laughs> Nobody showed. Um, little by little, it's grown. It's about 40, 60 women strong now. Wow. And we have guest speakers. Gloria Steinem did come, which was That's really amazing. cool. And she said, I started a revolutionary group, but there is no intention at revolution, just at uh, solidarity. Has this story, doing the story, changed your outlook on the world uh, in terms of, you know, you said at the beginning of this interview, it's not actually about nail salons. It's about labor. It's about wages. It's about uh, health. It's, you know, it's about these larger issues. So do you feel like you now sort of see the hidden world of New York in a different way? Well, it's really interesting. My best friend, uh, Quay Quinsettle, posted on Facebook that the particularly the New Yorker article that came off of this talking about the economy of nail salons and how it doesn't work. It doesn't the math doesn't add up. And I've talked about this a bunch. She posted on Facebook that this changed her way of seeing the world, that whenever there's a discount, she's going to think about who's bearing that cost, whether it's cheap meat, whether it's the animals, whether it's cheap clothing, it's the people who make it, or whether it's cheap nails. And I've been saying that the idea of a discount luxury is an oxymoron, and it's oxymoron for a reason, because somebody's bearing the cost of that discount. And in nail salons, it's always the person doing your nails, my investigation found. And I think that has put a new lens on the world for me, Um, one that I think grew over time as I investigated this project, but one that I probably carried around in order to see that first woman who was doing my toes. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Thanks to Sarah Maslin-Near for doing that interview after she had done many, many interviews over the course of a week. Uh, Thanks to folks at The Times for helping make that happen. And thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. And I also want to thank our sponsors, which are Tiny Letter, as always, Trunk Club, and Aspiration.com. You can go to Aspiration.com slash longform. As always, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, makes it all sound good. And our intern, Rachel Mabe, thank her as well. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.